You're listening to the Close the Loop Podcast, a show for marketing and sales decision makers aimed at making sure your campaigns get the credit you deserve for growing your business. Leading the conversations is the host, Kevin Dini, a true marketing and data nerd, live and virtual event speaker, and fan of all things Batman. Put on your marketing hat because we have some fantastic guests, subject matter experts, and colleagues who are passionate about helping business leaders like you to succeed. No need to take notes. Just visit the show page on callsource.com to read the transcripts, watch the episodes, or get any links mentioned in the show. Hello, and welcome to the Close the Loop podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. His name is Martin Strong, and we're going to be talking about conquering growing pains from your business. Martin is a retired Navy SEAL officer and combat veteran. He is a novelist, really awesome making that transition, a practicing CEO and chief strategy officer. And he's the author of the book called Be Nimble, How the Creative Navy SEAL Mindset Wins on the Battlefield and in Business. And the second book, Be Visionary, Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization, set for release in December 22 of this year. Marty spent a lifetime meeting challenges head on succeeding in three professions, anticipating crisis, and leading through crisis and chaos. He's an amazing person to dive into how to conquer growing pains here. So welcome, Martin. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Kevin. I'll try to be amazing. (laughs) Uh, We'd love to pick your brain on a lot of these subjects, but the the one that we're really here for that we really want to get into is on growing pains. Just to ground us here, what do you think of when we say growing pains and why do businesses struggle when they're trying to grow? Oh, I think it, I think it would kind of in two, two tracks. One is personal, individual, you know, professional. And the second one is organizational and I, they're intertwined obviously because organizations are, are contrived and populated by individuals. So can't really study or, or try to influence one without affecting the other. So, I spend a lot of time focusing on ways to motivate individuals, help them see the future, their own future. And sometimes their future, once they see it, doesn't align with the organizations they're in, which is okay. If it's healthy for them to understand what they want to be, where they want to go, what kind, what defines success for them, then they're going to go you know, where that path leads them. And they may leave the organization or they may find that an organization they're in, I don't care what it is, it could be a profit a nonprofit, it could be a church, it could be the military, it could be anything, then they're going to be better aligned with the organization. The The second part of that is if you're interacting with leaders of organizations and they're trying to figure out why the organization is is staggering or, or it's it's failing to pivot or, or anticipate, usually you're you're going to sit down and point to the same kind of introspection. What do you think the organization looks like in the future? Have you ever defined that path? Have you ever kind of sat down on paper or on a whiteboard and put the profile of what you are, what you want to be, and then draw, you know, draw the line between those two and say, are we on that path? So that's kind of how I look at, you know, the growing pains is not knowing where, where you want to be or what you are, who you are, or where you want to go as a person and as an organization. That's part of it. That's experiencing it when there's a disconnect and then recognizing the disconnect and figuring out a way to align yourself with your own universe and with the organization. 
Yeah, I like that there's two parts to that you've, you've laid out there. At its core, a lot of times there's maybe a way of doing business up to that point or a way of thriving up to that point that maybe has worked. But all of a sudden, there's, you know, to keep growing or to continue growing either the pace you had or to grow at a higher or more accelerated pace, there's some sort of hindrance to that. As a small business emerging and getting bigger and bigger, it might be you did everything yourself. A small group of people did everything. And I think in a lot of cases that ends up as, well, a few people can't do everything as the company scales up. At some point, something has to change. And that change is that point where it's like, can they handle the change? It, what got them there, that process, the people, everything that got them to that point is what ha- what they want to hold on to. But something about that has to change. And that visionary aspect you've described Where do we want to go? Do we want to be a huge company, but everything running on just a few people's shoulders? I don't think that that's necessarily sustainable. So when you're trying to grow your company, you're looking at it like, what is the least amount I have to change (laughs) to get that to happen? So do you have any thoughts on change itself, like transformative? If you realize your vision has to pivot, has to change, how do you do that? I think that's a struggle. Well, well, staying with your theme of small business and you know, the different class of individuals, one class is the leadership class and a founder business owner finds themselves a lot of times facing that the fact that, or the, or the truth that they can't, whatever got them there is not going to get them there. And as you stated, and what you're asking them to do, if you're an outside advisor, consultant, or if you're somebody who writes a book, you're asking them to basically dismantle what they just built. And it's completely contrary to, to human nature. You you may have struggled, you know, in a garage or in a in a bedroom assigned to the to the new business, you know, in home business, and and now you've got a building, and now you've got some employees and everything, but you're stagnated, or you're doing great, but you realize when you look out on the horizon that your competition is has made some move, shifted in some way, that's going to make you your products, your way of doing business obsolete. And you come to that cold, hard reality that if I do nothing, this is all going to fade. And if I don't do something smart, I'll miss the opportunity. And if I don't do anything at all, well, I'm, I'm just going to fail. So facing that fact, is, is that's one of your growing pains. Facing that fact as a leader, especially a founder leader who's got you know, sweat equity and a lot of pride and self-esteem baked in. To the organization. The second thing is when you're small, you don't want to add a lot of people because it's expensive. So maybe part of your growing is, is a reluctance to, to scale. And if you don't scale, let's say you're doing great. Let's say that there's so much opportunity, you know, the world's beating a path to your door, but you got to where you are right now by being in very tight control. So now you're not going to delegate any responsibility to anybody else. You don't want to increase your labor costs. You don't want to maybe maybe change the hours of your of your workplace. You don't want to open up another store. You, you want to stay contained and controlled and safe, even when people are coming to you and saying, "I want to buy whatever you're selling." And that's a really odd situation, but it actually happens a lot because people become less and less risk tolerant the more they succeed, and and that's usually when you have to open your eyes a little bit and and take some bigger calculated risks. To continue and to scale up. I think you can definitely hit home on that last statement there too. The identifying of risk, because 
in some ways, and, and I know that this is something you've said in your books or in your website, there's a balance of risk and reward a lot of times and how strategically managing your risk is definitely part of business. The risk represents both the financial risk, but there could also be an identity change too. Because I know that as businesses sometimes grow, they may go from, well, the CEO, the owner talks to every client, every customer that walks to the door. And then you know, if they grow to a point where they can't do that, then maybe who are they? I thought we were the company where, you know, you can reach out to the owner at any time, any anywhere. You always have us like on a on a direct dial. And so you have this great relationship. But as the company grows, does that mean you have to let go of that identity of, you know, you can always reach the owner? So there's the financial, maybe the risk of not growing as well. But there's also maybe the risk of like, our values having to change as well when you need to overcome a growing pain. Do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. If, if that culture, if that focus on the personal touch is that important to the owner, then stay the size you are. Be happy. That's where you want to be. That's what makes you happy. You can't stay that way and scale. You can't grow you, and you can't clone yourself. And it's very difficult. For most leaders and that have started companies and taken great risks, they've, you know, they've hawked their house, they've done all kinds of things. And now an advisor comes in and says, what you need to do is bring in somebody else and split the leadership work. And they're thinking, well, this person doesn't have any skin in the game. They're coming in for a paycheck. They're not going to care as much as I do. When that phone rings and they're at home, where I would pick it up in a second because it's part of my the culture I created, they may not pick it up. I, I, I have so many anticip anticipatory scenarios where anybody they bring in isn't going to be either as, as work as hard as them or be as committed as them and and so okay so basically you're going to be miserable if you bring somebody in <laughs> so so you have two choices keep it where it is and be happy with the size you are or sell it and let somebody else scale it and go start something new maybe what you're really good at is creating you know the the platform and the initial you know, genius of getting something out on the street, and getting a product or service developed and, and creating that, that, that brand awareness and that brand commitment in the marketplace. And then at that point, you can't exploit it because you're not willing to do the things you have to do to scale and expand. So sell it, move on, do something else. So, so it isn't always an either or, you know, or it's, it's lots of choices back to what I said before about individuals. You know, you have to sit, even as a, as a founder, you have to sit down and say, am I happy doing this? And will I be happy if I do all the things I need to do to go to the next level? And many, many times the answer to that second question is no. Yeah. So what's really fascinating there is you laid out a scenario where it's like, well, what is the purpose of this business? And does it have to strive for like the craziest growth possible, which may mean changing who it is and what it looks like. And you've laid out a possibility of someone being like, you know, this business has a purpose. It's not necessarily to grow beyond the reach of the capabilities I am and being okay with that. This is the kind of business I want to have. Maybe we sell it. Maybe the way I set it up is the way I want it to, to thrive day in and day out. So another part of this is being able to identify the growing pain itself. If you don't, I guess, find the true symptom, right? You might be spending a lot of your time spinning your wheels, so to speak. You're not really finding the problem that you're actually facing. So do you have any ideas for a business who's like, I've been trying to grow, but I've been unable to get past a certain growth 
rate or growth number. So how do I figure out what's really holding me back? Well, the first thing is to have that honest conversation with yourself that we've been talking about so far, because you may be the problem. You may want, on one hand, to grow and you think that that's some symbol of success that, you know, the size, the revenue number, the number of sales uh, per month, whatever it is that your metric is, you want to make that bigger because you think that's that's the scoreboard, right? But in your heart of hearts, that's never mattered to you. What's mattered to you is delivering a great product or a great service and getting the accolades from satisfied customers and knowing that you make a difference in people's lives and knowing that you know what you put together is solid, it's sound, and that the people working for you are happy and you're happy being where you are. So if you if you believe that second piece, then stop looking for the other answers. However, if you're miserable because you really, really believe that this is something you want to take, you know, you want to take it to the to the New York Stock Exchange someday, and that's that's where you're heading. All right. So then you need to you need to find out if whatever you don't know, you have to take an inventory and say, I don't know how to hire people wisely. I don't know how to create organizational structures wisely beyond one or two people. I don't understand everything about, say, remote work. I don't understand exactly how you control people at remote work. Anything that you're not doing that you don't understand, you have to find people. They don't have to be paid advisors. They can also be, you know, people in in a network that you know are doing this. You know, hey, Phil, hey, Susie, I know you're using all these people, they're knowledge workers, and you have how many? Oh, you have 60 employees. How many actually sit with you in an office? Oh, five. Well, how do you control all these other people? And then you just listen. You take notes. I mean, it's a thing. It's out there. The answers are there. It's not, you don't have to pay any money. You have to go to college to learn this stuff. I don't even think they teach it in college right now, by the way. So you sit there and you're all right. You know, I just did it. I just did it recently for myself. We're, we're going to move into a different space. We're looking how to use the floor space. We're, all right. Do we want to do it, you know, circa 2005 and, and have the landlord build walls and rooms and everything. And so instead, <laughs> on, on a lark, I said, well, on uh, Shark Tank, I saw this weird phone booth thing these guys were selling. It's a three-year-old Shark Tank episode. And this phone booth was to set up, you know, basically calls inside of an office. They had these really nice phone booths with little baffled doors. And so I, this is three days ago. I just Googled Zoom room, figured maybe there's something like that. Anybody that Googles that, you'll be stunned. There's hundreds and hundreds of companies now making these things. And there's they've got little tables coming out of the wall with a screen there and four little bar stools and all acoustically protected. There's uh, podcast versions of them with super acoustics. Yeah. So instead of having walls built, we're going to, we're getting in a large and a medium size. They're, they're not called zoom rooms. They're called all kinds of other things, but that's the way I Google it. And that's the, the decision we made. Plus a bunch of mobile walls that are <clears throat> two-sided white whiteboard walls and, and walls that let sunlight through, but you can't it's kind of frost it. And we can reconfigure and shift and do all kinds of things. And if we move from that space, it all goes with us. As opposed to having the landlord build all the the uh, walls and the rooms, we pay for it. And then a couple of years later, we leave and either it's de- demolished by the next tenant or they use the stuff we built. You know. And when when I when I Googled Zoom Room, I had no clue what we were going to do. And three days later, we had a finished plan. So you can get your inspiration from anywhere. And you should test what what the kind of leading edge thinking is on a lot of these 
business topics. And, you know, none of this is going to be found in a business book, you know, that's based on history. So you got to keep them open mind and, and be very uh, nimble, which is why I named the book Be Nimble. You have to you have to think that way. You have to ask people open ended questions and then shut up and start writing or taking notes or recording, whatever you have to do. And then think about it. It's 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 all out there. The answers are out there. You just have to be willing to ask the questions. Yeah, that's really cool. And and because you brought up the title of your book, Be Nimble there, it, it kind of relates to another question I had, which was a business has been around for a long time. An old dog. <laughs> can the can that business, can a business that's been around for a long time, can it can it change? Can it learn new tricks? Can can it learn to be nimble? Is this just for entrepreneurs in the early part who everything is sort of fl fluid anyway? Or is this applied to businesses at all stages? When you say business, I think of business models and platforms. I don't think of products and services. I think there's a lot of products and services that are stuck in the mud. There are a lot of places in the economy. One of the companies I'm, I'm, that I lead is a healthcare company. So healthcare, it, it, you know, in general, is much like the U.S. government or state government or the DMV. It's, it's, it doesn't have a whole lot of competition, doesn't have a whole lot of reason to change. And so it doesn't. You know, the, so the business model isn't that radically different than it was five years ago or 10 years ago. They just kind of tweak and do incremental adjustments. The technology sounds like they're changing stuff. Not really. If you're still, if if you can't just barge into your doctor's office and say, "Hey, I'm Fred," you know, see me right now, and they go, "Okay," then nothing's changed. So it could be that the product and the service are what's old and stale. And what you really have to do is say, "Do I have a an old and stale business model for delivering the product, or developing the product, or designing the product, or manufacturing the product, and then delivering it and distributing it?" And and is my service complete? Does it cover everything it could cover? Is there somebody else out there with a similar product that provides a service attached to the product? And they're doing something way above and beyond what I'm doing. And then can we do that? So I would, I would address the way to rejuvenate a, a company is to first look at the business model, which is the way you design, develop, build, and then deliver. And, and then also look at the market and whether the market cares about your product or service, whether there's a demand still out there or has demand shifted. I mean, Henry Ford built the same color black Model T for years and nobody complained until somebody else came along, came after it was General Motors or people that worked for him quit and went and started another company and had a colored vehicle. Next thing you know, it was like, hey, I didn't even know they came in different colors. So that sometimes is all it takes. You just have to look around and pay attention see what, what models are working and see which ones aren't and then look at yours. And again, like I said before, you don't have to do this all, you know, in a vacuum. You should ask everybody that works with you and for you because a lot of those people probably have great ideas. They're just afraid to, to upset you by bringing them up. I mean, I mean, if, if you're not open to those ideas and you don't make yourself available and, and approachable as a founder or a leader at any level, those ideas will never will never bubble up. They'll never percolate because the fear, either a failure or ridicule or or worse, um, invoicing those ideas will prevent those ideas from ever coming up internally. And if you can't get that environment or culture established, then do what I said before: go outside, open your mind, and ask every network contact you have, open-ended questions, and try to discover where you are in relation to the rest of the world 
size, pace, quality, speed of speed of, of business, all those things. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So man, you, you spread a couple questions in my head and already two of them flew out of my head. So one of them that's still in there was one growing pain I found that seems to be pretty common out there is people saying, well, I have a talent shortage. I have people leaving my company. I bring in people, I train them, I get them great. And then they leave. And I feel like I'm just always hiring. There's always this problem. The talent shortage growing pain is out there. It's been out there for the last, I think, year or two since the pandemic hit. People are you know, still figuring out what kind of companies they want to come back to. So in terms of the talent shortage growing pain, how do you assess that and how do you navigate that? Because a, a little bit of that is retention and a lot of that is also attracting the right talent, making sure there's a good process for hiring. So there's a lot there, but is there anything you could speak of in regards to the talent shortage growing pain? You first have to establish a profile for the kind of participant you would like to have in your business model. I'll give you a, a quick idea. I, I think I talked about this in Be Nimble. I use some simplicity in, in explaining this. There's 50 mile an hour people and 100 mile an hour people. If you have a business model that's a 100 mile an hour business, everything's moving volume, velocity, complexity, boom, boom, boom every day. You can't hire 50 mile an hour people. I don't care if their resume is exactly the same as a 100 mile an hour expert, technical expert, leader, whatever. By personality, by level of energy, you're just going to have a problem. <laughs> now think of this. Let's say you have a 50 mile an hour organization because it has to be because it's a safe, it's safety related or something or the way the quality is maintained. Bringing in a bunch of 100 mile an hour employees is just going to cause a bunch of, they're going to be, they're going to be constantly frustrated. They're going to be banging their heads against the wall, wondering why we're going so slow, why we're, not, why we're not doing things differently. So that's a disconnect. So you have to figure out what kind of organization do I have? Or if it's too slow and I want to ramp this thing up, maybe the reason it's too slow is what I've done over time. I've just hired people in based on their resume, their technical quals. I never, I never thought about the other part of the profile. I mean, could you imagine if you were a professional basketball team and you said, okay, all I want on the resume is their ability to dribble. And then HR tells you, yeah, I've hired five people. And you go in the room and they're all five foot one. But they can all dribble. You're like, oh, man, there was another dimension there you forgot to put down on your set of requirements. So one of those other things you can, you can note in the profile is creativity, imagination, uh, the, the willingness to, to share ideas, a little bit of self-confidence. Because if you don't have self-confidence, they'll, they'll clam up the second you hire them. It'll all be about job, you know, job safety. So you don't want that. And here's another thing you have to be willing to do. One, you have to be willing to overpay for the for that kind of person. If you're gonna, if you're going to get a hundred mile an hour person that's open, imaginative, and is willing to communicate and has self confidence, this isn't the you don't you don't go to Salesforce or any place else and say what's the median and then go back ten to ten percent and and hire at that level. Because you're never going to, one, you'll have a hard time attracting them and then you'll never retain them. So you have to figure out what's the premium for that. Those kinds of people are also very trainable and cross-trainable. So you can start building, I talk about this and, and be nimble more than be visionary, but you can build bench strength. You can build redundancy. You can build competencies in a lot of different areas. You can attract people in by saying, we're going to cross-train you. And once you're cross-trained, we're going to cross-project utilize you. And that's exciting for 100 mile an hour people. That's exciting for people with imagination and creativity. So that's 
that's one big disconnect. I was with a company one time where we had all that. It was all growing great. And as soon as all of us got senior and were moving up and the organization got bigger and bigger, went from like 175 to you know 900 people. We hired in human resources professionals and they just started hiring people based on the resume. The interview was a confirmation of what was in the resume. It wasn't anything about how, to, how could they work in the business model. And the business model was dynamic. I mean, it was really dynamic. So we had people being hired and this is in all skill sets, accountants. There are um, people that are by technical skill, meticulously focused on details and they, they don't want to interact with a lot of other things. They get their focus is important to them. But you, if you need accountants that can work on three different projects, they have to have at least that flexibility, right? And these HR people were, were hiring in accountants that were, this is my stack, this is my cubicle, don't come near me. And I'm talking about like 10, 20, 30 accountants. And then we, we, we realized, uh-oh, we lost control of the culture. And then we said, we never defined the culture and handed it to the HR department. We all lived the culture in our heads because we were all very entrepreneurial. And that's where we screwed up. So we had to sit down and redefine the culture, redefine the profile of the, of the perfect fill in the blank, senior leader, middle leader, supervisor, technical expert, reissue that guidance and then try training with who we had. And yeah, so, you know, you learn this stuff by, by making mistakes. I made lots of mistakes. I've been, I've been there and watched lots of mistakes made and I've, I've chimed in and raised my hand. Yeah, it's a good plan. And then watch it fall apart. With all good intentions, I mean, it's not like a bunch of people sat in the room and say, let's do something stupid today. You know, everybody thinks they're making a good, a good decision. But that, all that experience and all those, those failures and the successes, I tried to bake into being nimble because it's all about the mechanics of leading and hiring and talent selection and cross training and a lot of the normal blocking and tackling in businesses. Be visionary is more about dreaming and trying to figure out how to turn a dream into a strategy. So then here's a question for you that I think may fit more into your second book, your Be Visionary book. This was another growing pain I found that was very popular. One that, in fact, I have experienced in part of the production side of marketing, which is every when every day feels like you're putting out fires, you really don't feel like you're being very strategic. In fact, you don't really feel like you're doing anything of any visionary value because you just day after day, tactically just putting out a fire here, next day putting out a fire there. You don't really get to feel like you're looking beyond a few days ahead of time. You're just kind of thinking, man, I hope this, you know, in a few days works out. And then in other times I've, I've come out of that or been on different roles and been like, wow, this role is so much more strategic than it was before because before I was just putting out fires. Uh, it felt like everything's an emergency. Everything has to roll up to me. Everything has to be solved by me. Everything has to be a my decision. We didn't really plan for, and then we solve it, but then it feels like more problems are just right behind it. And so nothing ever feels like it gets to that point of, I get to be strategic and I get to improve what I'm doing. I'm just literally making sure the water isn't going through the cracks. So uh, that was one pain, one growing pain that I found that I was like, Ooh, that's an interesting one. So how do you move from a firefighter <laughs> putting out the fires and plugging the holes to getting back to being more strategic in a leadership role? That's a great question, Kevin. It really is. It, so the subtitle of Be Visionary is Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization. And what you described has actually always been around, but it's getting worse because business schools, 
and corporations that are first technology enabled and now AI enabled are starting to get really comfortable demanding a high granularity of short range measurement, you know, KPIs, which causes everybody to focus on the grains of sand and the tips of their toes every day. Well, I guarantee you, if you are that focused on every single thing that happens every hour of every day, you have one, you know, it's frantic. So it's going to feel frantic. You won't be able to solve everything because things don't get solved in a day. Some things actually go away in three days and some things get better. One, once in a while, they get worse. So not everything is solvable in a day. And your to-do list of, of houses to, that are on fire, you know, to put out never will never, ever, ever be resolved. You'll just keep adding to it. But now, unfortunately, there's this kind of mantra out there that because you can measure and because you can measure so frequently and so intimately and so tightly, that's, that's now expected of leadership. That's now strategy. You know, what did you do last week? What did you do last Tuesday? What did you do yesterday? Thank you. I'll call you tomorrow and you can tell me how you did today. You know, and, and then nobody wants to talk about not even next week, let alone six months from now or whatever. So I tell you, the only thing I've been able to do, I, I started, I read someplace probably a decade ago, somebody in a book took Sunday and they would get up, they set their alarm and get up really early in the morning on a Sunday. And they would sit down with a blank piece of paper and a cup of coffee. And all they would do is think big thoughts. They wouldn't let one single short range to do problem that they're trying to solve be entertained. They only said, what do I think the world's going to look like a year from now? Where do I want to be? What do I want to have you know, personally? What do I want professionally? What do I want if I'm running an organization? What do I want that organization to be doing to look like a year from now, two years from now? What's going to prevent me from doing that? Is there anything out there that could help me? Is there a target of opportunity that I should start looking at and start steering the ship in that direction, so to speak, over time? If you do it as a discipline every Sunday morning before you get interrupted with kids or life or whatever, you find that you've it's like a muscle. You start to exercise it, and pretty soon it's okay. You start to think that way. Even during the week after about two or three months, I found myself seeing an immediate problem, and then most of my brain jumped to, is this going to be a problem if I want to go down this path? See, I was, I was starting to connect current issues with future, you know, opportunities or, or future threats. What I do now is I do it for about 20 minutes every day. And I do that because I like that idea and I like doing it. But the second I go into the office and I'm the CEO and I put that hat on, I'm basically it's a lot like when I was a SEAL officer. We used, to, we used to joke that in modern in the modern days of SEALs, the officers were just telephone poles. We had you know radios and headsets and little little switches to switch between different frequencies. You're talking to planes and helicopters and artillery and naval gunships and the sniper team off to the left and the guys inside the house. And that's what you were. And you're, you're like, halt, please. And you're, you're shifting all these little switches around. Well, that's kind of how it is being a CEO. You, you walk in and the sun comes up and boom. Your phone lights up, your, your computer lights up, your cell phone lights up. People start start dive bombing you at random. These are leaders for the most part. And they just swing by and, and they have sometimes a, 
a fairly shallow question, but that's rare in my experience. So they come by and they give you a deep question. And then you're like, wow, okay. So you either start talking about it right in the moment with me. I'll just grab them and go into a room with a dry race board and we'll try to diagram out what they say the problem is or think the problem is or the opportunity. And we'll think about, is there anything we can do right now or do we need to get some smarter people involved in it? But that's what I do for the next eight hours. But I, I'm comfortable doing that because I spent 20 minutes that morning thinking about the strategy of the companies that I manage, thinking about the individuals, thinking about the professional development of my senior leaders, thinking about the way things are being communicated, thinking about the, the uh, relationship and the communication with my board and the outside outside investors and things. Yeah, it's only it, it took 20 minutes is more than enough. It's not meditation. I just sit there and, you know, I have a piece of paper if I want to write on it, but that's something anybody can do. You just have to commit a block of time I would suggest either Sunday morning, if you just want to do it once a week to try it out, or early in the morning, I get up at 5.15 to write. But, you know, usually by around 6.15, I'm done writing, and that's when I do my 20 minutes. Wow, that is some really good advice. I've heard this um, from a couple different books and leaders and conferences and people talking about the concept of block your schedule. You have to make time for your priorities. And priorities is just something that you've heard a million times, but equating it to like, okay, what am I in my business or I'm running my team and managing whatever it is I'm doing? What is a priority? And is it always going, obviously the emergencies are, they they inherently feel like they're the most, the highest priority at any given moment. But there's things that you kind of have to step back for and plan like, okay, I'm going to Put a half hour, hour, whatever it is, like you've described, in because the strategic element of my business is a big priority to me, like amidst all the other things that are going on. And figuring out your priorities in your business or in how you, you know, want to organize your time, even, it is something I've equated with like as you, <laughs> a matured thing, a matured leadership concept, because you're, you're, you're not necessarily like blocking out and telling people, you know, never talk to me, but you're just like making special time for certain things to happen. And if you organize your day in a certain way where you do get your time, you do set priorities for the things that are important for strategic wise. And then there's other times for obviously open office hours or whatever it is like you've worked, you've talked about. I think that's really important. I think that's a really cool answer for someone who is in the midst of being a firefighter all the time. And a really fascinating take on it, and, and how you've described, you know, the the CEO, the owner is basically like a, you know, you joked about it. The person in charge in the SEAL team is like a telephone pole because yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that where it's like, man, that office door is just like swinging and moving all the time in that you know leader's office. And do they have any time for anything else? So I think it's yeah, it, it's crazy. So going off that, you did your part of your your first book was how the creative Navy SEAL mindset wins on the battlefield, right? So when I saw that, I was like, I got to ask you, right? I, I haven't read the book, but obviously the book is about that. But in its essence, what is the creative Navy SEAL mindset? So the, the book really is about business leadership, organizational leadership. But I, I can't help but give a nod to the to where I learned a lot of the creative leadership that I exercise and I talk about in the book. And the SEAL teams are are probably misunderstood because of the, the media and, and Hollywood. So 
one way of answering it, just to give you a, a short description of what, what a SEAL is. So a SEAL is, from the beginning, is, is probably a college-level athlete. Doesn't mean they played college-level sports, but that's how good a athlete they are. And they're screened for high intelligence, and that's not my opinion. They actually do that during the screening process, and for creativity and resilience. So when you get through the first basic course and you show up at an actual SEAL team, you've already been selected on a couple of different levels. And one of them is your imagination and creativity, your drive, and your willingness to both lead and follow. A, a room full of SEALs is a very difficult thing to lead, in my experience. <laughs> because you walk in there, and I used to joke with somebody, you know, when you, you want to say hi to everybody, when you walk in to talk to the SEAL platoon, you start out by going, good morning, Napoleon, Napoleon, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Napoleon. Everybody, everybody knows they're they're smart. Everybody knows they're they know their their job and they know your job and they know your job better than you do. And and so it's an interesting dynamic. But if you don't get inhibited by that as an officer, and you figure out a way to tap into all those all that brain power, all that imagination, break it up. I used to break people up into little think tank groups and go and imagine four different ways to do the the mission, four different ways to get to the to the target site four different ways to do it where we had to do on the target and they thrived on that they loved that and they'd come back and we have to pick something at some point i'd have to say this is what we're going to do and it might it might be a hybrid but it was never a compromise it was never it was never like consensus or compromise it was what was the best element generated from that process that creative process and as an officer you do a lot of bigger picture mission planning besides leading people every day so what i found out when i got out of the navy was the first thing is nobody was pre-screening spending millions of dollars to pre-screen this this type of person to show up at, at my my company <laughs> so that was a shock because you know we just went down the hallway and asked the operations officer for an extra guy when one of our guys got hurt and they give us exactly the fully qualified super motivated <laughs> creative guy <laughs> Same same guy, you know. Here you go. This guy's name's Bob. He's just like the he's just like Tony, but Bob's gonna take Tony's place. Bing, just like a Pez dispenser. They go in there. You don't even miss a beat. In the outside world, that's not the way it is. So I found that I really liked leading that way, and I think organizations could be very powerful that way. And with a few number of people applying their brain cells, their imagination, and being cross-trained the way we were always cross-trained, you had so much redundancy and so much cross understanding of everybody else's technical area of expertise, which allowed us to collaborate collectively even more and into a deeper level. I said, well, how hard is that to do in the commercial world? How hard is that to do in a civilian company? You just have to decide that's, that's what you want to build. And so you'll get whatever you get coming in through human resources. You try to set the profile, like I said before, to get people to come in with at least the DNA. And then you have to, try to forge and create that kind of idea of creative teamwork and and also show them that you're you're okay with everybody throwing ideas out even if those ideas are either contrary to yours or maybe ideas that lead to the destruction of something you built personally right yeah i've i found that too sometimes uh, a new process makes the new tasks the new things you're working on way better the way your direction you want to go but it also, everything has like a give and take, right? This new process may make what we did before a lot harder to do or may destroy things that we were used to doing, make that old process or task irrelevant. It's really fascinating how some of the things 
I, I figured a lot of your experience and learned wisdom from being in the SEALs would come across into the business world. And it was just a curiosity thing that I'd had was like, well, are there things you've gotten in the business world you would take back to the, <laughs> to the SEAL side? I don't know if you ever asked that, but I was just curious. I thought, well, what about the other direction? Which if you went back there <laughs> with anything, is there anything you would, you found out in the business world that you'd be like, wow, this is interesting, you know? No. <laughs> it's very honed no because almost every almost everything in the business world is so restrictive and it's so well here, I'll t here's a, here's an example why why it's a no again misconception about seals green berets you know marine raiders these are special units that are supposed to go into a special task now special doesn't mean better it just means different than conventional. So the conventional forces, you wouldn't send 15 or 20 SEALs to go take a hill or a fortress. You'd send the Marines or Army Rangers. You'd send 200 badasses and not, you know, and, and maybe prepare prepare the target with artillery and airstrikes and then send the badasses in. You wouldn't send a little handful of guys in that could do a lot of push-ups and you'd get wiped out. So what you're really looking at is every time a job comes up, every time a mission comes up, and they do this in training on purpose to to constantly keep you on your toes is we never look at and plan for the same scenarios. They're all unique. They're all special. They're all different. So that idea of a business model, you basically build the business when you're building the mission plan. It's unique. It's different. You may configure differently. You may not have used people the same way. You may not have got in the same way. You, I've gone into places in the back of dump trucks and, and jumped out into dumpsters and waited till it got dark. I mean, you, you could think of all kinds of crazy ways to do it. And you may never use again. In business, in the commercial business, it's that's almost impossible to do. You have a point. You're selling widgets. You can't come in every day and go, nah, let's sell shoes today. Yeah, you know, heck with that. We're giving swim lessons for a week. You know, you can't keep flipping around. So I, I would not want that lock into one conventional task business model in business, the commercial side, in the SEAL teams, because then that would erase the whole value of having a special special unit. Wow, that is so fascinating and so interesting and absolutely answers what I was curious about. Maybe it's just the way I, I think of it. A, a good amount that involves the armed forces to be sort of static. And then a small piece of it, which is really, really important to be highly dynamic. But it's such a cool idea that you've you brought up that, no, every single mission we're doing, we're coming up with a totally new company, a totally new business objective, new business thing. How many times did we go after bin Laden? One time, there was one Bin Laden. Right. That's so interesting. Wow. I tell you, the conventional forces train to take certain kinds of targets, beaches, whatever it is, in, in big ways, big forces. Big, and it has to be set up and structured and everything because there's a lot of complex parts, a lot of people involved, a lot of different machines involved. And the timings, all those things, it's a different job. Than, than what it's like a factory it's like pumping out cars at a factory as opposed to uh, a seal team is probably more like a group of creatives at a at a advertising company that you know every every couple of weeks somebody comes in and says hey we just got this request for a proposal and they want to figure out a way to make apple sexy can you guys figure out a way and then all of a sudden that's what you're doing you know yeah that's cool I love that. I love that metaphor. I love that way of describing it. What's well, sexy, sexy apples <laughs> in the advertising group. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. 
So let's say a business is really on the precipice right now today. This will be like one of the main last questions here for you. Uh, the right now thinking, okay, we've had a growing pain we're facing and we're going to do something about it. They have a plan. They're on the precipice of going through their plan to make a change, to grow in a way that they haven't before. So is there any, let's say in the next like 90 days that they're looking at here, any tips or suggestions you'd have for managing that pivot, that that next couple steps they're going to take of unfolding their plan and making it real, any sort of, I don't know, things to look out for or, or, or things to remember as they enter that conquering their growing pains plan as it unfolds? Well, I can either assume that you've already thought through the strategic visionary aspects of this and, and be visionary. Actually, there's there's some mechanical advice for, I think, two or three chapters. What I put in there is there are people that are very visionary and very open to all kinds of crazy ideas. And there are people that are very good at cross-checking other people's work. There are two different kinds of human beings and you're going to have both. So I said in the book, go ahead and uh, deputize both groups, create a dream team, have them work on the vision and turn it into some professional uh, strategic concept. And then when you get it down to where you think it, it's solid, hand it to the other group and let them try to blow holes in it. Let them try to figure out what, what could be possibly wrong with it. And the friction between those two groups, one, you're taking in human behavior and the fact that there are different kinds of people in organizations. But the friction of those two groups, if you do that up front, should create a strategy for that pivot with timelines and resource demands, expectations, milestones you know that are reasonable. And you've kind of battled back between two different kinds of advocates until it came out to be a practical, achievable plan. Now, that's not necessarily a hyper-detailed operational plan, but if everybody in the leadership team on day one sees it, hears it, and says, got it, conceptually, then the next thing is to, to create the, the smaller hyper-detail operational plans, assign people, project leads, people to the project teams, and try to do as much as possible in parallel, because that way you could take advantage of the time you have. If you got 90 days, one team is going to work for 90 days. If you have 90 days and you have seven teams, you're going to have seven times 90 days worth of you know, brain power working in parallel. So as much as you can, try to work it in parallel with multiple groups. Even if the group is only a group of one, you know, try to break it up so that it's achievable. The other thing is, if you run into snags, you'll need that extra time. And, and you can also kind of dogpile and resource focus which parallel team, project team is running into a problem. So they've actually found something that was glossed over or argued over in the dream team one. And all of a sudden it turns out now that for practical purposes, this really can't happen. So as a leader, you might have to jump in and, and decide, is this a showstopper? Is this something that is a resource problem? We need, need to get an expert from out of town to come in and, and figure it out. But yeah, that's what I would do. I mean, 90 days, 90 days, 100 days. If you had a year, I would do the same approach. And from time to time, revisit the original concept to keep everybody on track. Because it, if you don't do that, if, especially if it's a longer one, like a year's project, if you don't bring them in about every month to reset the concept, um, just like strategy, we have a five-year strategy. And I heard it five years ago in a conference room. But after that, I mean, so we've been wandering all over the, the desert since then. <laughs> doing what we think might kind of be aiming towards the strategic goals, but we're not sure because nobody said anything about the strategy since five years ago. And here's the dusty document 
you know, from five years. Yeah, you have to kind of re reinvigorate that that long long view, big picture, strategic, conceptual uh, point of view and plan with your leaders and have them do it with the people that are in the projects. Because, you know, people are people. They need to focus and they need to see what the course and bearing is. They can't just be left to wander. Wow. You've given some amazing insights here, Martin, and to kind of recap a little bit, we've talked about what growing pains are for businesses. We've talked about a few examples of growing pains. You've given some really great insights on how to overcome some of the talent ones, some of the emergencies, visionary, strategic parts of it, how to open up and involve more team members in the creative side of it, how to organize different teams for accomplishing projects when they're or accomplishing a strategic growth initiative. These are all really great things that we miss. Any, is there anything else in this topic that you've wanted to add? Only that I'm a big believer in intellectual humility. And that's something you should start with every day, whether you're a leader or not, because the world's changing too fast for you to just stick to your guns and believe whatever you were taught yesterday, a year ago in college is still valid. Test that validity every day with an open mind. And that intellectual humility will protect you from taking old ideas and, and then stepping into bear traps because you didn't keep your eyes and ears open as you're moving forward. Yeah, that is a great lesson to take away. And as far as, let's say someone wants to reach out to you, connect with you, find you, uh, check out your books. Is there a resource? Is there a website? Is there any way people can find you and connect with you? Sure. I write, my novels are all written under ML Strong, and that website is mlstrongauthor.com. All my novels, uh, all the proceeds go to the SEAL Veterans Foundation. There's a program there for PTSD and, and traumatic brain injury. My business books are all on my website, martystrongbnimble.com, along with all my articles and the books. And I write under Marty Strong for my uh, business books. And there's a, um, a way to reach me through that website. And of course, the books are all on amazon.com. Awesome. Yeah, I didn't know about your charitable part of what you're doing. That's great. I didn't know about that. So that's really awesome if anyone wants to check that out. And again, Martin, thank you for coming on. Thank you for you know tagging in and giving us this amazing wisdom and knowledge and some of your experience in the SEALs and in business. And it's been fantastic for anyone who's learning to conquer their growing pain. So really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me, Kevin. I've had fun. 